Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have Scott Reynolds Nelson. Uh, Scott is the University of Georgia Athens Athletics Association Professor of Humanities and is uh, uh, the author of the book that we're going to discuss today, Oceans of Grain, How American Wheat Remade the World. Scott is a Guggenheim Fellow and the author of five other books, including Steel Driving Man, which received the Merle Curdy Prize for the American Social History and the National Award for Arts Writing. Scott lives in Athens, Georgia. Scott, thanks for joining me today on History 605. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I was not surprised at all that you won an award for writing. Uh, the book was really a wonderful read and driven by such a powerful narrative. Um, filled with very interesting people, and you wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily think that grains, history, uh, frankly, would be that interesting. But, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you've pulled off this amazing, amazing story. Um, and I was wondering, how did you get, how did you get uh, started in this? What, what line of questioning led you to write this book? Well, thanks, Ben. Yeah. I, it was, uh, I honestly, you know, my, my grandfather was a farmer, so oh, okay. I, I understood a little bit about farming uh, mm -hmm. from uh, upstate New York. But um, no, it, it, uh, this actually started a very long time ago when I did my honors thesis around 1986 about the iron and steel industry in Western Pennsylvania. And I finished it, and I realized when I finished it that, that all the historians that I'd read, none of them really understood the Panic of 1873. Yeah. major financial catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother had told me about it because she, mm -hmm. she had uh, been raised by her grandparents and her grandparents lived through the Panic of 1873. And, um, but but the, all of the literature that I'd read by American historians had said it was all about, you know, Jay Cook and all the European historians said it was all about this Berlin panic. But all the financial records that I was looking at and all the, all the, um, back and forth between railroad executives and steel operators and things like that said it, it had, suggested it had nothing to do with that and it had everything to do with international trade and particularly the price of grain. And so hmm. that's what got me intrigued by grain. And I have to say, I've been <laughs> okay. thinking about grain for a very long time since then. Well, very good. Cause uh, you know, in this neck of the woods in the Northern Plains, uh, <laughs> the price of grain uh -huh. is something that uh, well, people watch the commodity boards or the boards, as they say, and watch the track the price very carefully and try to sell and buy at the most advantageous point. And so um, mm -hmm. that's why I thought the the book would uh, be of great interest to listeners and and uh, 
But of course, it impacts everybody in the world. And that was the other thing that your, your book talks about is how, well, commonly human, the price of grain, you know, it impacts everybody. And uh, you open up with the revolution that's starting in Egypt in 2011. And that's an event I was mm -hmm. watching with some professional interest at the time. And you tie that into that revolution kind of kicking off because of what grain markets are doing to mm -hmm. in, those in uh, Egypt at the time and then kind of setting that off. And and mm -hmm. uh, for my study of the French Revolution, I know that the price of bread was a huge issue that finally set off the French Revolution. So this is a very common thing. Why do you think this is an aspect that's missed so often? Uh, I don't know. I think p part of it is we now think that, you know, bread prices are not that important somehow, that they're, uh, you know, that, that, that they're matter. But of course, we, you know, we, we, we take, we have Belgian endive, we have all sorts of fruits and vegetables and things like that. But we forget, I think that the rest of the world has depended on bread for such a long time. And wheat in particular is, is this magical thing, because once you dry it and uh, pack it, as you probably know, as, as, mm -hmm. I, as, you, as many people in South Dakota know better than I do, you can ship it a very long distance that stays uh, dry and, you know, uh, usable either as feed grain or as food mm -hmm. for years. And that's makes it quite flexible. And, and what I was discovering in the 19th century was that this is that it's when we talk about industrialization in big cities in Europe, the place where industrialization happens isn't necessarily a place where there's lots of technology. They're places where there's lots of food, lots of cheap food. And mm -hmm. it's particularly those deep ports, Antwerp, mm -hmm. London, Liverpool, Rotterdam, Amsterdam, uh, those places that get cheap food end up being the places where you see urbanization and industrialization. And that's a, that's a, I, I started as the more that I got into this, the more I realized that bread, because it's the staff of life, because it's what poor people eat, uh, it makes a huge difference when the price of that just changes a little bit. So economists like to look at prices, but when they notice that the price of grain dropped from about 50%, from 1868 to 1872 around the world, mm -hmm. uh, they didn't seem to think much of it, but <laughs> it has all these knock, <laughs> right. right? A 50% drop in the price of grain is shocking for, it's not, it's, and it's basically as the U.S. gets hooked up to a world economy for the first time in right. grain. Uh, U.S. has been exporting grain to the Caribbean and stuff like that, but really hadn't really sold to Europe. Right. But it's after the Civil War that that um, the spigot of amazing, uh, really dry, really usable grain gets to Europe, and it just changes everything. Yeah. And all sorts of existing economic relationships collapse in part, I think, because of um, you know cheap grain. Yeah. Well, we often. Um... You talked about the Panic of 1873. I've done a few podcasts about uh, the, the Grant administration and, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, relations between the United States government and Lakota at the time in the 1860s and 1870s. Mm -hmm. And that panic certainly sets the scene for the collapse of President Grant's attempt to uh, change Indian policy for the better, and it really boxes him mm -hmm. in. And mm -hmm. the discovery of gold is kind of like in some ways, what the Federal Reserve does today. They just push a money, push a print uh, button on a computer, and all of a sudden there's more <laughs> currency in the system. Um, right. that's, that's kind of the thing that Grant is going after with uh, tapping the gold reserves in Colorado and California and the Black Hills. Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, implications yeah. are far-ranging. Right, right. And and I think that's the – when we think about currency, we often think about, you know, gold and silver. But it's also when, when most people think about c- currency, most working people in cities in, you know, the 1800s, they're thinking about how much does bread cost. And that's something that everybody knows. Mm-hmm. And so they don't think so much in terms of pounds and shillings or dollars and cents. They're thinking about how many loaves of bread is that and can I feed my family for the next week? Right. And part of that that calculus changes when all this uh, cheap American food starts arriving because suddenly for poor people, it's cheaper to live in a city than it is to live out in the country and uh, particularly in Europe. And um, hmm. and of course, as you know, as uh, grain prices go down, also uh, land prices go down. So yes. what we see in Europe is a huge drop in land prices. And that's that's a really big part of what the what the panic is about is you know the whole calculus of how bread relates to land relates to prices uh, changes pretty drastically around this time. Mm-hmm. Well, that that gets to the title of your book, how America or the subtitle, how American wheat remade the world. So, mm-hmm. what were the things that? Well, maybe we should back up for a second. And you, your book starts in the ancient world and talks about how the drying and the development of almost a technology around the preservation of grain. Uh, the making of bread mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. How, I wonder if you just walk through briefly that process yeah. and who the discoverers were in that and um, how that changed right. the world for the Greeks and the Romans and the. And the sure. Uh, so, yeah, so one of the things that I, I argue, and I'm not the first person to argue it, but a, a lot of other people have a lot of other things mm-hmm. to say about it, but uh, it is. That we, we are used to the story of Demeter and Persephone, right? And this little Greek story about uh, Demeter and his uh, daughter, her daughter Persephone, traveling around. And she's got slim ankles, and she's captured and brought into the underworld, where she traps and and is is trapped and laid waiting for her mother to find her. And um, what a kind of clever uh, English professor at Oxford who was also a farmer notices that this is not a story about planting wheat. This is a story about preserving wheat because what you need to do is dry it and keep it uh, you know, relatively cool, uh, not let it get overheated, not let it get too wet. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, you can store it underground even and just like Persephone. And so there are, there are ways of reading that story that suggest the secrets of Persephone are really important for understanding how you would get cities, right? Because being able to, to not just plant green, uh, grain and harvest it, but to have it for the next season mm-hmm. is crucial for, you know, family life. So I think part of the reason that Demeter and Persephone, that story is so old from probably the 8th or 9th century BC is because it's, it's a kind of story that parents told their kids about what to do if we die, right? <laughs> uh, you know, the, yeah. you've got to be ready, you know, you've got to, you have to store this grain. Well, yeah. that story, it, so there were, they were called the Eleusinian mysteries in, um, in the Greek world. Okay. And then uh, in the Roman world, they're, they're called, they're also called the Eleusinian mysteries, the mysteries we got from the Greeks. They were, they were like a state secret. And you could be executed for telling the Eleusinian mysteries. And I think that that's because of this grain storage issue. And around four or 500 AD, that's lost. And so from around 500 AD to around 1820 AD, no one knows how to store grain safely underground. And <laughs> that's, that's kind of impossible to imagine, right? Yeah. Um, but, but it's true. 
so grain is stored uh, up, mm. upright. It's stored in these big baskets that are dried, and that's that you know works more or less. But it, and then they're covered, so they are likely to get wet. Um, they're mm. not going to last more than a year. And in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance and the Reformation, people are still relying on grain that's has to be less than a year old. And so that has all sorts of effects. Uh, you don't have big cities in Europe in the Middle Ages, partly for that reason. And then it's uh, Napoleon who says, all right, the Greeks and the Romans knew this. We have to figure it out. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he sends a chemist off uh, and they invade Italy, uh, parted, get connected with the expansion of the French uh, Revolution and uh, the French Empire. And they investigate these Roman ruins and they figure out, oh, all right, what's happening is that they dry the grain and then they stir it and then they separate it and then they put sand around it and then they put it underground. And this is how you keep. And so this is where silos come from. That uh-huh, discovery yes. is the basis of what we what we now call silos. OK. Well, and then something can go wrong with that. Right. You talk about the pestilence and the, the di- various mm-hmm. diseases that can occur and how that um, mm-hmm. impacts the Middle Ages as well. Uh, I thought that mm-hmm. was, a, you know, as we kind of deal with this pandemic, um, mm-hmm. the, this idea of uh, some kind of contagious disease disrupting and destroying life, uh, something that's mm-hmm. more relevant to us now. Um, right. wonder, how can you or how would you describe um, that aspect of this and grain prices and the storage of grain? Uh, yeah, so so one of the things that we know about grain, um, and we've relatively recently discovered, is that grain must have been tra- must have traveled over thousands of miles in uh, 2300 BC. So so almost three centuries before Christ, we see grain traveling over long distances. And we, the reason we know this is because uh, we, now with next generation genome sequencing, we can look inside the people's teeth. And determine, you know, who their ancestors are, uh-huh. and how they're traveling. And lots of them die from the plague. And there is a plague corridor that goes all the way from Sweden to Manchuria, right? Uh-huh. So all the way across Eurasia. And this plague corridor turns out also to be a trade corridor. And we know it must have to be a trade corridor because no person travels that distance. So over the space of just um, a relatively short amount of time in the in the ancient world. Um, this uh, grain and the and Yersinia pestis are traveling this very very long uh, distance, but we know from the genome sequencing that no humans made that trek. It's so it's basically these trade links mm-hmm. that go <laughs> just hundreds and hundreds of miles. People carrying grain, probably by uh, oxen, uh, from from town to town. They're carrying the plague with them, um, and the plague moves faster and further than any human does. Uh, so this, this kind of changes our way of thinking about the world. And where's the center of that world? Where's the center of this grain trading world? It's Odessa. That's where it's not yeah. Odessa. It's actually uh, just north of Kiev, yeah. uh, south of Kiev. And that uh, that's where grain starts, um, in the, or the many versions of grain that we now use. Uh, the diversity of the grain, all those land races, a lot of them come from this area around Ukraine. Okay. And you, you speak of Ukraine... Ukraine comes uh, uh, repeated up and up again throughout the throughout your book. It's constantly <laughs> discussed, and the timeliness, of course, we're we're recording this in the middle of May, and the invasion has been on for a couple of months, and um, mm-hmm. so I think that um, uh, people are beginning to learn the geography of Ukraine a little bit more because it's on the nightly news, right. and we're probably find 
uh, Odessa and Kiev when before they may not have um, known exactly where they were, but but mm -hmm. uh, the strategic value of Odessa and Kiev uh, is mm -hmm. something that rings through in your book as well as a, as a constant mm -hmm. source of uh, nations vying for power and the power over these green or what you call these black paths. I wonder if you could mm -hmm. talk a little bit more about the black paths. Yeah, so th those those routes that that route from from um, Sweden to Manchuria is um, there. There are a number of these, and in, in Ukrainian, these are called Chorny uh, Shlaki, the the Black Paths, and they are ancient. So no one really knows, you know, in the uh, 11th or 12th century where these paths come from. They just know that the paths have existed before anyone remembers okay. them. Yeah. and that's that's how grain is traveling, and what. Um, what the, the key to Odessa ultimately becomes for the Russian Empire is a place where you've got lots of flatlands, you've got lots of fresh water, and you've got access to deep ports. Mm -hmm. And that combination is a sort of Goldilocks zone. It's perfect for grain because you can offload grain onto ships and deliver it to ancient uh, Athens or ancient Rome or you know the, really any part of the ancient world. And so some people said that story of Jason and the Argonauts is a story that the, that the golden fleece that they were looking for was actually a metaphor for, for grain, uh, because oh. that's what they find when they cross the barrier and into uh, the Black Sea is all this grain. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's a, it's a big, uh, th those black paths are important for understanding. Uh, so, so we know that those black paths are older than empires because empires start, you know, you know, depending on how you define it in this, fourth or fifth century AD mm -hmm. and, uh, sorry, but fourth or fifth century BC mm -hmm. and um, maybe, maybe the sixth or seventh, but this is 2300 BC that we see this grain, these grain roots established. And so this sort of understanding of the world, I think ch changes a lot. And one of the people, I, I started to investigate this, uh, uh, was interested in how uh, Chicago uh, replaces Odessa as the world's grain source. Right. And um, there was a, there was somebody who's long dead who beat me to it. So I felt like I was oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was plagiarizing it as I was telling the story. Um, but the short the reason the strategic importance of, of Odessa is, is it's got this Goldilocks zone for you know flat flat, uh, flat paths, very very deep trinosum soil, mm -hmm. and um, and water. And so when Another plague comes along for potatoes, what we call the Irish potato famine, right. that hit the whole all of Europe. Uh, that the response to that was basically for every empire to open up its ports, and the person who took the most advantage of that was Catherine the Great, and the Russian Empire became a grain delivering empire from say 1850 all the way up uh, until uh, really the Russian Revolution. Right, and and that ability to to I guess take advantage of the of the market as she found it with mm -hmm. the with mm -hmm. the changing prices uh, to get mm -hmm. get on top of that and get ahead of that and um, that also is another ironically enough another uh, aspect of South Dakota history is that there are a lot of German speakers who emigrate to the northern plains from Ukraine mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. uh, as you yeah. write about yeah. the laws change and the czar is it Nicholas or Alexander the second that that goes after mm -hmm. this power and all of a sudden a lot of those people for religious reasons or economic reasons decide hey north america looks pretty good i'm going to go to the dakotas <laughs> and right. and do what i do there and 
Yeah, and, I'm going to take my seeds with me. Right. And, uh, right. and, and get out of here. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a lot of people, a lot of uh, German, Russian Germans uh, put, um, you know, grain in their pockets uh, and s- sewed them into their linings and brought them, brought them with them from uh, these various parts of Ukraine. Yeah, so the Russian Empire, Catherine says, she promises for something like, uh, there's, there's a, the term is like a millennium. She promises that for a millennium, no one will be um, uh, drafted into the Russian army. Okay. And so she attracts many German Protestants who are you know, facing in the 1700s, facing uh, persecution from uh, either the Catholic Church or uh, primarily the German Catholic Church and also the French Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And so they come as refugees, but... <laughs> Yeah, it's, I think it's, I don't remember whether, I think it's Nicholas II who's, who says, oh, by the way, a millennium, this is 100 years later, oh, by the way, a millennium is 100 years. Yeah. So, <laughs> so all you Take that zero is, off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're cutting the zero off. And, uh, and all you Russian Germans, your kids, your, your 17 and 18 year old kids are, are going to be used in our various land wars and navies all over the world. Right. And um, a lot of Russian Germans think, well, that's, you know, they start checking maps uh-huh. <laughs> for where else to go because nobody wants to die for a, a violent, expanding Russian empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, and in the 1880s, it's, it's a very brutal empire that's, that's, uh, just uh, expanding at a breakneck pace across the Black Sea and all the way to Manchuria. Yeah. So then there's other innovations, though, and you talk about, for instance, that uh, during the Civil War, I I, mm-hmm. I kind of came up uh, through the ranks as a military historian, but I have never really paid much attention to, while studying a great deal about the Civil War, and despite the fact that in the Air Force I was a logistician, never really spent a lot of time thinking about oh. the railroads and the management of those. And so a lot of what you said made perfect sense to me, just figuring out how to squeeze out the greatest efficiency because you're trying to win a war. And, right. uh, and right. the South uh, was not set up uh, with the same type of advantages due to, ironically enough, slavery. And I'm wondering if you can mm-hmm. talk about the how a middle class creates demand for a railroad or some other kind of transportation network like that. And then, um, then the innovations that occurred during the war by, uh, what was his name? Foster. No, I got the name wrong. Oh, uh, Oh, oh, Peter Watson. Watson. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Right. Peter Watson. Uh, and what they did. Forgettable names. Right. Well, and it's yeah. I, I, unfortunately it's all been too forgotten. But uh, you you resurrect right. him, I right. think, in his importance in the whole story. Right. Uh, yeah. So so one of the things that I uh, talk about is is the rush for the plains. You know. So so in the 1840s and 1850s, uh, after the uh, potato famine has ravaged Europe, after it's clear that every European state is going to import grain. And after it's possible to deliver grain over long distances, all of which happened in the kind of early part of the 19th century, um, we have uh, this concern about who settles the plains. Is it going to be southern states um, and slaveholders with enslaved people coming along with them? Or is Mm -hmm. it going to be uh, northerners or, or even immigrants that come and settle these plains, and it's a contentious issue in Congress, right? Mm-hmm. Is there going to be slavery in Kansas, Nebraska? And of course, that's we know that's one of the things that causes the war. But the people that I highlight are the people I call the Boulevard Barons, and these are people who right. are they're 
sometimes called the robber barons, but I'm, I'm actually interested in particularly these logistics folks, mm-hmm. these people who are establishing railway corridors and want to build railway corridors through the grain states, through the plains, and deliver grain all the way to the Atlantic Ocean and, of course, uh, to Antwerp and Liverpool, where all these people are willing to pay for grain with gold. And, um, yeah, and they're willing to fight for it. So when Southern planters try to, uh, through their use of the use of Congress, try to take control of this region, that's when push comes to shove. And that's when uh, these Boulevard Barons help to form the Republican Party. The Republican Party is a, is a party that's not devoted to the end of slavery, but it's devoted to no slavery in the West, no slavery right. in those plain states, because mm-hmm. it's so valuable. And, um, and, and there is this thing that they notice, people who are railroad promoters notice, which is when you build a railroad into Georgia, it, it, a, lot of, a lot of cotton comes out of Georgia or Alabama, a lot of cotton comes out of those places, but nothing goes back, not enough goes back. Mm-hmm. So in terms of bulk uh, and in terms of value, those trains come back almost empty. And, and that's because slaves uh, on plantations, the enslaved people are not customers, right? They're not buying boots and shoes and, uh, you know, gloves tools and, and yep. uh, tools and right, uh, steel plow points and things like that. All that stuff is, they're not buying it. They are getting shoes once a year, but that's not the same as, you know, country stores that ha- have, thread and, and, and shoes and all those sorts of things. So they realize the, these Boulevard Barons realize that those country stores are really the, the really important to the railroads, that having goods to go back means that the railroad cars go back full. In the South, because the railroad cars go back empty, the delivery prices are cost twice as much, cost twice as much mm-hmm. to, um, to send that cotton east. And so the railroads fail again and again, they fail in the South. And they succeed on the plains because people buy stuff uh, from the east and mm-hmm. they sell their grain to the west uh, from the west to the east. And, um, and, and, and you, can, you, can, you can run a railroad as long as there's uh, travel going back and forth. And so that's something they're willing to fight over. Um, and then, yeah, during the Civil War, the difference is that the South is blockaded and most of U.S. foreign exchange is coming from cotton during the from 1820 to 1860 or so, and not grain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Lincoln needs something else to get foreign exchange. He needs gold. He needs silver. He needs um, you know money to buy um, goods that are coming from Europe. And so, and he needs to be able to pay back bondholders and things like that, right. or to buy U.S. bonds. And so, and so he. And Peter Watson, who's who's the person who used to be his boss <laughs> when, oh. when he was, uh, yeah, Peter Watson was Lincoln's boss. He was the person who first hired him as a railroad lawyer uh, in, a, in patent disputes and, and other things and then kept them on retainer. This um, Peter Watson, it becomes assistant secretary of war, and he makes a deal for the railroad directors. He says that the railroad directors can build a continuous railroad corridors from Chicago to the ocean to the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And in exchange, the U.S. will get a 50% discount. U.S. government will get 50% discount on anything sent back and forth. And that's particularly food and uh, material and soldiers and things like that. And uh, and that's, I think, crucial for understanding how the U.S. becomes a place that's going to pour a bunch of grain into the rest of the world after the war, yeah. is that those, a lot of, you know, if you're in Cleveland, you don't want a railroad that goes continuously all the way to Chicago. 
you want it to stop yeah. <laughs> Cleveland, right? <laughs> and you want it to stop at the state line. And so every state wants to put barriers, impediments uh, along a continuous railroad. But Lincoln says, I will give you sort of the executive, um, he writes executive orders, um, the, the, um, and it becomes, no one wants to fight against the union war effort, right. especially in Cleveland or those other places. And so we get these, uh, long distance corridors, B and O, the Pennsylvania, the New York uh, yeah. Central, the Erie, that go all the way to Chicago, and make the plains really accessible to deep water for the first time. Right, and so then there's there's another innovation that's also occurring. I don't know about simultaneously, but immediately after, or maybe mm-hmm. maybe just before it, in finance. Uh, describe how who right. who comes up with these idea for green futures and pricing that that really drive right. down the prices. Or that's, add that's trust been a big question. Yeah, that's been a big question of where great where where the grain futures market comes from. And one of the things that I found is it's pretty clear that it's the Union Army that does it. That the five grades of grain that are established in um, in the 1860s are the same five grades that are established by the Union Army's uh, um, supply c- command uh, during the war. And um, What's happening, this is, this is a little bit of a complicated story, but basically um, th- there are, initially the government wants to issue contracts for people to provide uh, oats to the Union Army for the horses. And of course, there are hundreds of thousands of horses in the Union Army that need to be fed every day. And, um, but, but they offer contracts for 10,000 bushels of oats, and only five or six people can provide 10,000 bushels of oats to um, to Gettysburg, for example, or uh, Jeffersonville, Indiana, the two railroad supply heads. And uh, so those guys talk to each other and they set prices for uh, oats and they drive the prices up. And so the Union Army comes up with this very clever plan of telegraphing orders for oats in thousand bushel, or sorry, hundred bushel increments to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, they, do, they don't specify grade. They don't specify anything that the old markets did. They just say, 100 bushels of oats, what's your price? And um, they, do, they do hundreds of these, or not hundreds. Uh, let me just think about that for a minute. Yeah, almost 100 um, um, adul- um, orders, each for 100 bushels of oats that are sent to Chicago, and a price is agreed upon on the floor of the Chicago uh, board of Trade, mm-hmm. and they're agreed upon by Telegraph in New York by the Union Army. And um, what's new about this market is, you know, there had been something like a futures market that goes all the way back to 17th century, even okay. 14th century, really. But what's different about this is, first of all, you don't know who the buyer or the seller are in these in these markets. So it's anonymous. Oh. That's, there's no name that's associated with it necessarily, mm-hmm. and so the union can hide its uh, <laughs> desperate need for oats. Uh-huh. Um, there's a set price and then there's, there's, um, uh, yeah, there's, there's a, a price that which is of course variable and changes over time and, and you're delivering for May or delivering for October. Mm-hmm. And, um, this, this basically allows the union army to break the back of this group of oats traders who had been charging and overcharging the union army for oats because they were able to buy it directly by telegraph uh, uh, for future order in Chicago um, on it's December of 1864 is when they first start this. Okay. And I don't think anybody at the time thought that this was going to be anything but a way, like a, a gimmick, really, for the yeah. Army to 
to get to get away from the futures uh, from the uh, oats traders. But what the Chicago Board of Trade discovers is that, well, if I have a if I have a bundle of these futures contracts, I can go to a bank and and put them down for a deposit and and use them and borrow against them. So yeah. I can I can show off that I've got you know 200 futures and I can get a loan from a bank for um, you know eight or nine thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and that is really just changes the way that grain works. It, it makes it possible for all these line companies to go th- along the corridors and and, and offer future grain uh, sort of sorry make bids for future grain, uh, establish the contracts and then sell them. Uh, on the Chicago Board of Trade, and we'll get really a futures market and, and basically a whole financial system that's premised right. on wheat. Right. And and so and, and so the, the the American banks are are re, reorganized during the Civil War. Previously, banks um, were were privately managed and had no direct relationship to the federal government. During the war, uh, it changes, and and you cannot uh, one one principal issue in the bank banking system is that you cannot loan money on land because that had caused previous panics, but you could loan money on goods in transit. Okay. And so that's what the banks do is they offer loans to people for goods in transit, which are these futures contracts. Okay. Well, yeah, there's a lot of implications to all of that, isn't there? With, with Watson's just trying to feed his army and he creates a whole, System and of course, then what's going on back in Odessa and in Ukraine when you, when the Americans are figuring all this out? What's what's causing <laughs> so problems it, uh, over there? Uh, it's definitely causing problems over in Odessa because Odessa had been like the supply depot for uh, European grain for since the Napoleonic Wars, since mm-hmm. the time of Napoleon, since around eighteen hundred or eighteen ten or so. And suddenly these upstart Americans come and it's much further away from, right. from the plains of uh, Kansas, right, to all the way to, um, to Liverpool than it is from Odessa to Liverpool. Yeah. But uh, you, can, you, can, you can establish these contracts. You can buy – a Liverpool dealer can buy grain from Chicago by um, – well, for initially from New York by telegraph. Mm-hmm. And have it and sell it on the same day, and that eliminates the price differences. And so Odessa oh, right. is in trouble. Uh, Odessa is in trouble. So so it it can't. It's it's a deep port, but not quite as deep as New York, mm-hmm. and or or Baltimore. And it's um it, it uh, the Russian state, <laughs> Russian Empire is a little bit cumbersome in terms of regulations and things like that. Mm-hmm. New York is beautiful for uh, delivering grain, and so. Basically, uh, New York, uh, over the space of about five years, from 1868 to 1872, New York replaces Odessa as mm. the world's center for grain or Europe's center, center for grain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the prices are so much lower because, you know, uh, land is, is much, much cheaper in Kansas mm. and, uh, the, uh, and, and the Midwest. We're, we haven't gotten to the Dakotas yet, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but... Uh, land is much cheaper in those places, and they're much more they're artificial harvesting equipment and things like that that they don't have in Russia. And so, uh, Russia and the United States are in a direct competition mm-hmm. for then from say 1868 uh, all the way until the Russian Revolution. And in the most part, for the most part, it's the United States that wins that battle. It's it sets the prices. The New York price becomes the world price. Mm-hmm. 
So the railroads, the telegraphs, and the financial kind of innovations that's going on. There's one more innovation. You talked about deep water ports, and and there's uh -huh. people who want to make deep water ports where there aren't any. And what's the invention <laughs> that allows them to do that? <laughs> that's nitroglycerin. Yes. Uh, thank you, Alfred Nobel. That's why we have a Nobel Prize. Is he became a multimillionaire from uh, from this invention of dynamite? Yeah. Uh, nitroglycerin packed in mud allows you to terraform the planet. Right. You can, for the first time, uh, you can actually penetrate rock that is created by celestial forces. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so previously you could you could cut into rock um, with gunpowder. But you could not go through a mountain. You you could you could spend you know a um, million dollars in 1865 and never get through a mountain. Mm -hmm. But suddenly you can go very you can go through mountains uh, in 18 around 1868 1869 and then in 1870 and 71 basically every major mountain in the world uh, except for the Himalayas is penetrated mm -hmm. by railroads and and so that too changes the kind of all of those black paths that we were talking about that connect the world's grain together, suddenly those black paths are straighter because you don't need to go mm -hmm. all the way around the Appalachians. You can go straight through them. Mm -hmm. You don't have to go, uh, you know, uh, and in, likewise in California, you don't have to go th um, through the mountains of California. You can go through them. And both of those events happen at the same time, right around 1870. Yeah. Well, and there's also the, the creation of, you talk about Antwerp and, and, Bringing right. larger right. shipping yeah. and the ability to mm -hmm. make the well blaze through the and create the Suez Canal and then later the Panama mm -hmm. Canal and and these paths get even right shorter. For yeah, yeah. So shipping. cities become entrepreneurial cities like Antwerp. Say, all right, we're gonna we're gonna re we're gonna terraform our cities and we're gonna make yeah. Antwerp a real deep water port. We'll accept the largest ships possible, and not only that, we'll have we'll allow ships that are called lighters to carry grain in the harbor for six months, right? So we'll have such a, such a big, deep, wide port that we don't need warehouses for grain anymore. We can directly offload the grain onto these ships and they'll wait until they're needed. Mm -hmm. And that, that makes a huge difference for shippers of grain because they think, well, <laughs> I can go, you know, to, um, you know, uh, someplace in Paris, someplace in uh, France to deliver my grain or someplace, or Hamburg or something, mm -hmm. or I can go to Antwerp and unload all my grain in a day. Yeah. and turn around and leave with another cargo. So right. it makes super cities like Antwerp and Liverpool uh, and makes London even bigger. Yes. And the bankers in Antwerp are almost as smart as the ones in New York, and I'm sure they figure that out too. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I mean, Antwerp wanted to be a big world city, and it was – yeah, you know the Spanish galleons of the 17th century, right. Charles the First, were were from there, but uh, it had been a kind of a, a little tiny town for for too long because of all the wars, mm -hmm. uh, and so the, yeah, they they uh, Belgium became the a kind of commercial center for Europe. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things I like to do on the podcast is kind of talk about history as a change over time concept and what has mm -hmm. changed and what remains the same. So in your book, certainly the, the desire for grain is a human desire for, um, mm -hmm. and it, it struck me too. We often talk about the geopolitics of oil. Well, this is a wonderful mm -hmm. book on the geopolitics of grain and certainly something that predates, um, modern engines and the need for gasoline and so forth that, that right, happens. Right, right. If, if you think about it, both grain 
both grain and oil are are energy. They're yes. stored energy, yep. and we we measure them in calories in both cases. Right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, um, so as we contemplate Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainian. Um, issue here and uh, what mm. has changed and what has remained the same over time for the past 2,800 years, the scope of your book. Mm. What do you think? <laughs> um, if the Ukrainians are able to pull this off in the defense of their nation, um, will they come mm-hmm. back online quickly or, or will will uh, they be back in uh, 1873 and wishing the Americans wouldn't... <laughs> <laughs> so, so much grain. Yeah. Um, you, you know, it's it's uh, you know, Ukraine is still the Goldilocks zone. You know, South Dakota mm-hmm. is so far away from either the Atlanta or Atlantic or the Pacific right. that um, you can make it as efficient as you possibly can to get the grain out. And mm-hmm. the U.S. does a spectacular, pretty good job of that. Um, but you you can't be um, you know Odessa where you're you know you you can be ten miles away from uh, your deep port, and you can have a you can have a farm that's ten miles away from a really deep port. Um, and so, for particularly for there's certain grades of grain that are still going to come from uh, the Black Sea, and they're going to be preferred from the Black Sea mm-hmm. uh, in part because of you know there's issues like wheat rust and stuff like that, which you guys probably know better than I do. But uh, the, you know there are concerns about carrying grain too long, and mm-hmm. um, and that's why India will, for example. It'll be a very long time before India actually provides comp- uh, real competition for okay. the United States for grain. Um, but um, I, d- I do think that they can get online fairly quickly, and I think there are opportunities for really streamlining that delivery. Uh, there have been a lot of Ukrainian and Dutch and other farmers that have gone over to Ukraine in the last nine or ten years and bought land there and um, and delivered grain again. So in a way, um, you know, it's it it did provide a kind of opportunity for selling grain up close uh, mm-hmm. to where the world markets are. So I think Ukraine's always going to be, um, so I'll, like, this is personally what I think about Ukraine. Yeah. It's, it's the most under, uh, under exploited land in the world. And, you know, we used mm-hmm. to think about that as North Africa or Central Africa or something like that, but no, mm-hmm. partly because of the uh, Soviet system. And then mm-hmm. the, you know, post 89 slump and stuff like that there's amazing rare earth metals in in uh ukraine there's a there, there's a palladium there's lithium there's uh nickel a lot of a lot of other things that are in ukraine that are worth killing people for and that's mm-hmm. that's what um russia understands in the short term though it's grain that is helping russia because as long as they can blockade ukrainian grain uh the prices have doubled, as everybody, I'm yeah. sure, and more yeah. than doubled, as everybody knows in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. And as long as those grain prices are doubled, the ruble is going to be stable because so much of uh, grain is still backing the ruble. And that was true in 1760. And it's mm. it's true today that the thing that backs up uh, the ruble is, is and always has been um, lots and lots of grain. Yeah. And the relationship between so I guess we'll, we'll end the conversation with where we began in the uh, Egyptian Revolution of, of 2011, and the and the kind of right. the pinch points of what can set off revolutions mm. is the is something that we don't really appreciate anymore. I think for a wide variety of reasons, the the price of bread. Right. And that's right. Right. At, yeah. And that's that's our future. I think yeah. uh, honestly is as as 
we're talking about, <laughs> I, I heard somebody at the Chicago Board of Trade say, nobody benefits from $11 grain, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. 11, uh, right? <laughs> like, oh, no, that's not, that's not true. But as long as grain is $11, that's great for, uh, for, for grain growers yeah. and uh, grain shippers and others. It's it's scary though yeah. in North Africa and the Middle East where right. if grain prices go up that much that people will get angry and they'll go mm -hmm. into the streets and unfortunately in this you know in in the 18th century that might have meant something like the French Revolution or something like mm -hmm. the revolutions of 1848. Mm -hmm. Nowadays state power is so much stronger than people that you know with tanks and mm -hmm. and things like that. That what what you're we're more likely to see is protests in the streets and then and then uh, you know uh, chaos like we saw in Arab Spring. I yeah. a lot of people were excited about Arab Spring. I was worried about Arab Spring. Yeah. States are very powerful, yeah. and they kill they can kill people. And so I worry that we're going to have another refugee crisis again if we see the same kind of instability that we saw when we had eight dollar grain, which was 2011. Yeah, yeah. Well. Um... Scott, it was it was a good conversation and a wonderful book. Uh, super well written. I think it's one of the one of the better written books I've read in a long time. Um, Thanks so much. And uh, I wish you well. What's your next project? Is there? Oh, <laughs> well, there's. I, I kind of am interested in this is this is a, a a pie in the sky thing, but I'm sort of interested in the KT extinction, sixty six million years ago when um it basically all the dinosaurs died out and it created oh. the um yeah and 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 created this uh belt of um fall line cities that we're used to in the in the united states and i've i've written about the fall line before and how it changes you know because grain uh and and cotton and things like that have to stop at the fall line because you can't send ships down them and then cities build up there and I'm interested in the sort of different climates that you see in the coastal plain versus the hills, um, the different kind of flora and fauna right. that are there. Right. Uh, kind of a little bit of a meditation on us because the only thing that survived that 66 million year old extinction were uh, basic, well, so, some whales and some, um, but it was mostly um, those of us who are uh, could eat anything. <laughs> so the big <laughs> rat things that are our ancestors yeah. uh, could eat could eat animals that are long dead. And and uh, anyway, so yeah. there's something I want to write about that. I, I don't want to call it big history because I feel like that's uh, uh, that's oversold. But I'm interested mm -hmm. in uh, the, the big issues about cl climate and as you know logistics. Like you, I'm a logistics person, right? So right, right. I was an, I was a network engineer for oh. uh, big companies in Toronto. And I worked a lot with logistics people uh, who were delivering, you know, uh, sweaters, right, <laughs> balls right. and things like that. So I I learned a lot about how that system of order and reorder and everything like that worked. And in a way, that framework for understanding the world through logistics. And we learned everything we learned from you guys, from the military. Uh, military logistics, you know, they may not think of themselves as being that important, but much of what we call civilian logistics or is is really derived from the things that we learned from military logistics. Right, so right. that's partly why there's just so much military history in this in this book. Yeah, well, uh, I would say that military logisticians know that they're important <laughs> because because I think there's a phrase, and I'm probably going to butcher it here, but uh, there's a phrase that um, 
hobbyists talk tactics and but professionals talk logistics so um, right. That creates the capacity for the realm of the possible, as I would often say right. to my folks. Right. Um, yeah. Well, Scott, uh, this has been a wonderful conversation, and, and thanks a lot for joining us on History 605. Thanks so much for having me, Doug. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.